you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to 2 Samuel 13. We speak of fullness of joy. We are not in, in the most joyful of passages of scriptures right now. In 2 Samuel 13, the first half of the chapter... Being Amnon's rape of Tamar, his half-sister. The second half of this chapter being Absalom, Tamar's brother's response. Title of the message, The Fruit of Resentment. When we speak of the fruit of something, uh, the fruit which grows upon a tree is the product of the tree. Uh, The type of tree that you have will bear certain fruit. Resentment, when we speak of resentment, is an attitude, it's an emotion, it's a frame of mind. And that frame of mind, that attitude, that emotion bears a certain fruit, which we will speak of this evening. And we're going to find it in the life of one young man, a man named Absalom this evening. We'll find it in another life later on based upon this the same errors in David's judgment and the judgment of his family but this evening we consider Absalom remember where we left it last time Absalom and Tamar are full siblings they have a half sister a half brother named Amnon Amnon being the eldest of David's children Amnon Loves Tamar, the Bible says. He has a friend named Jonadab who, is, who encourages him in a scheme to take Tamar for himself. Amnon does so. He takes Tamar. He rapes her. He hates her, the Bible says. We talked about that. And then sends her on her way. She ends up living with her brother Absalom. Absalom taking care of her for indeed now she has to carry that shame for the rest of her life. And we pick up in verses 21 and 22 of this chapter, where we read this. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. Well, David was very angry when he heard that Amnon had raped Tamar, but but that's really all that we hear. That's all we read about. David is angry. He recognizes it is wrong. But as far as the scriptural record goes, he doesn't actually do anything about this. The law was very clear about the expectations of rape in the Old Testament, that if a woman was raped in an area where um, where she could not be heard, then she was innocent of that. If she was raped in an area where she could and she was not, she did not cry out, she did not scream, she would not be innocent because the implication is that she did not cry out. In this case, it's very clear from the biblical record that she was raped, which means Amnon deserved to die. David, however, gets angry and that's all we read. And as we consider that, we recognize that actions do indeed speak louder than words, don't they? I can tell one of my children, I'm not very happy with what you did, but if that's all I ever do, they are going to learn quite quickly that they can do anything they want, and the worst they're going to get is a tongue lashing, which most children can bear. Wicked human hearts operate on a scale of incentives and consequences. I will do what I want, 
until I'm constrained by negative consequences or positive incentives to do or to not do certain actions. But even more important as we consider David's response is that humans correlate the way we feel about something far more with our actions than our words. David could express his anger towards Amnon's actions, but the fact that he didn't do anything about Amnon's actions spoke volumes, didn't it? At least in Absalom's mind. So why didn't David act on this? We don't know. We know that David was not a very good father. But we also must understand that Amnon was his firstborn son and likely the heir apparent to the throne in Israel. In a manner of speaking, Amnon may have been politically above these disciplinary actions, as David wrongly might have wanted to preserve Amnon's testimony and authority as the next king in Israel. We're not quite sure why David did what he did, but it created in Amnon a resentment, a hatred for his half-brother. And Absalom, for his part, could not speak to his brother either good or bad. He had nothing to say to him. Certainly couldn't speak good. He didn't speak bad. He hated him so much he didn't even want to stomach speaking to him. And so we find already the situation has become a bigger mess than just Amnon's sin and Tamar's defilement and shame. Now we have Absalom's resentment and David's apathy or ignorance. Uh, uh, unwillingness to respond. And we find this in verse 23, and it came to pass after two full years, two full years have now transpired, that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal-Hezor, which is beside Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. So we fast forward two years since Amnon raped Tamar. Absalom has brooded in his anger, his hatred for Amnon for all of this time. But he was not inactive. He, he was behind the scenes Making plans. Uh, He didn't intend just to allow this shame to get by. In verse 23, we, we see a plan begin to unfold. And as a part of this plan, Absalom waits until the time of sheep shearing. Uh, his flocks were in a place called Baal Hazor. It was on the border of Judah and Ephraim, it seems. And the text tells us that he invited all of the king's sons for a celebration of the season. Now, this would have been very common at the sheep shearing season. The Jews don't need a lot of excuse to, to have a feast. They, they, they feast for a lot of things. And the, the sheep shearing, the end of the season where they would shear the sheep, was another reason to get together and eat. And, and that... In that uh, sense, they're kind of like the Baptists. We don't need a, a real good reason to get together and, and have a, have food. We just need a reason. Let's eat some food. And, and they just wanted to have a feast. So they had a feast at the sheep shearing season. This would not have been uncommon um, for him to give a feast. And it would not necessarily have been uncommon to invite his his siblings. Although, as we as we we study the the context, as we study the passage, it seems as though. David and his family perhaps didn't do this very often, where they all got together. So the account continues, and we'll get a little more perspective in verses 24 and 25. The text tells us, And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now thy servant hath sheep shearers. Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servant. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let us not all now go, lest we be chargeable unto thee. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but blessed him. So Absalom comes to the king, and he actually invites David himself to come and to be a part of these 
festivities, the celebration of the sheep shearing season. Of course, they're not going to do any of the sheep shearing. They have people to do that for them. They're just going to celebrate while the other people shear the sheep. Uh, Absalom would probably need to make this a royal invitation in order to assure Amnon's attendance, right? So his his desire is to get Amnon to attend. How am I going to get Amnon to attend? Well, he raped my sister. People probably understand that I don't like him very much. I don't speak to him either good or bad. I'm not just going to invite him. How can I get him? How can I compel him to come where he has to come? Because if he doesn't have to come, he's probably not going to come. I'll invite dad. If, if I say, Dad, I'd like you and your servants, that would be your children, to come. Dad says, I'll come, and my children are coming too. Well, nobody says no to Dad, because he's the king. So if I can get Dad to come, I can get them to come. So he says, Dad, would you come? And Dad says, no, I don't want to be a burden to you. I don't want to be chargeable to you. So I, I'm not going to come. Am, Absalom presses him. Come on, Dad. Would you please come? Dad says, no, but, I, but the Lord bless you. This is... He, he, he didn't not want the event to take place. He blesses him for what was going on. He just doesn't want to come. So this kind of throws a kink in Absalom's plan here. How can I get Amnon there if dad won't come and then demand the attendance of his sons? So he goes to plan B. And plan B we read in verses 26 and 27. Then said Absalom, if not... I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, Why should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. So the, the text focuses in on Amnon. I don't know necessarily that, that Absalom really focused in on Amnon. Maybe he did. The text indicates that perhaps he did. But either way, we see that all of the king's sons are being... He's pressing for all of the king's sons to come. He's not just saying Amnon alone. He's saying all of the sons. Again, he's trying to mask his purposes here. He's trying to cover his bases. Would you at least compel all of your sons to come? Because if, if again, if, if King David says, all of my sons, your brother Amn- uh, Absalom has a feast, I want you to be there. The sons say, yes, sir, we'll be there. Uh, you don't say no to the king. And so it takes some persuasion, but at the end of this persuasion, Absalom convinces King David to compel Amnon and all of the king's sons to go to this feast. And so they do. And this sets the stage for Absalom's terrible plan. Verse 28. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not. Have not I commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So he commands his servants to do the dirty work here. When Amnon's mental faculties have been sufficiently deteriorated by alcohol, which is what alcohol does. And when Absalom gives the signal, his servants were to kill Amnon. And he encourages them not to be afraid. Of course, they would be afraid, killing the king's son. Not just the king's son, the eldest of the king's sons. Presumably the heir apparent to the throne of Israel. And Absalom says, don't be afraid. I'm telling you to do it. Be valiant, be courageous. This is justice. And so now we're set up. Verse 29. This is what happens. The servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man gat him up upon his mule and fled. So Amnon is killed. Amnon's heart is merry. 
The servants kill him when Absalom gives the word. And the rest of the king's sons see Amnon killed and they get out of there, right? So is this a coup? They don't know what's going on. Is this killing all of the competitors to the throne? This would be very common in pagan cultures, right? You get all of the potential competitors to the throne together and then you kill them all so that you can have the throne. When there was any transition in authority, this would regularly happen. They were afraid that this would happen when David transitioned from Saul, right? The first thing when David said, are there any of Saul's lineage and Jonathan's lineage that I can bless? And they said, yes, a young man named Mephibosheth, who's lame in his feet. And he said, bring Mephibosheth to me. And the first thing Mephibosheth did when he got into David's presence was fall on his face. Why? Because he thought he was going to die. Because that's what kings did to their competitors. They killed them. To anybody who had a claim to the throne, they killed them. Of course, David didn't do that to Mephibosheth. That wasn't his purpose. These are not pagan kings. These are servants of the true and living God. They ought to be above such pettiness. But they don't know what's going on. Amnon is just killed. So they run for their lives. We know that Absalom's intent at this time, however, was not to destroy all the king's sons, to take the throne for himself. Absalom's intent was simply to avenge his sister's honor. And indeed, he does. Verses 30 and 31. And it came to pass, while they were in the way, that tidings came to David, saying, Absalom hath slain all the king's sons, and there is not one of them left. Then the king arose and tear his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants stood by with their clothes rent. So, uh, they being in the way, that would be as David's sons were running back to him, somebody gets word to David that all of his sons have been killed. And of course, he rents his clothes, he lays upon the earth, the servants uh, uh, stand by him with their clothes rent, they are mourning for the loss of David's sons. But then someone speaks up. And this is interesting and, and, and to me extremely frustrating. Verses 32 and 33 tell us this. And Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all of the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom, this hath been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king take this thing to heart, to think that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon only is dead. Oh, this intrigues me. Jonadab, the name of the one here who sought to comfort David. David's nephew, Jonadab. His nephew from his brother, Shimea, speaks up and assures David that not all of the sons are dead, but only Amnon. And he mentions specifically that Absalom had been planning this since the day, two years earlier, when Amnon had raped Tamar. Now, why is this so interesting? Well, because who is Jonadab? If you go back to the account of Tamar's rape, Jonadab is found in verse 5 of this chapter. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed and make thyself sick. The plot to rape Tamar came from Jonadab, this same young man. 
And now, before anyone else has the information, before anyone else has the intelligence, Jonadab, before his sons get to him, Jonadab boldly assures the king that only Amnon is dead, not the rest of the sons, because this was Absalom's plan since day one. Why did he never seek to tell anybody before and prevent it? Or was it because Jonadab was the one that helped Absalom create this plan? He was the one whispering in Amnon's ear to rape Tamar. Perhaps he was the one whispering in in, in Absalom's ear to kill Amnon. Hope I'm getting those names. Did I say Absalom before? You know what I'm saying. The Bible calls Jonadab... In verse 3, a subtle man. The friend of Amnon. It looks like he is one of those people, and we've all known them, who entertain themselves by playing people against each other and by creating drama in other people's lives. He uses manipulation and lies and deceit to stir people up against one another for his own benefit and enjoyment. Seems like he might be one of those. He's playing both sides of this. And he's the one smiling in the center. He's the friend to everybody, the enemy to everyone. One of those people who derive personal joy out of watching others in pain. People who love to watch the drama stand on both sides, pretending to be the friend of both. And I suspect Jonadab may have been one of those I I can't prove that. But it's interesting, is it not, that the same one who whispered in the ear of Amnon to rape Tamar is now the one who knows, even before the sons of David arrived, that David's sons are not dead, and that Absalom, from the beginning, two years earlier, had intended to do this to Amnon. He's everyone's best friend, but in reality, he is always quite near to interpersonal conflict need to watch out for those people. They're dangerous. So we continue in verses 34 and 35. But Absalom fled, and the young man that kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there came much people by the way of the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said unto the king, Behold, the king's sons come, as thy servant said, so it is. Absalom, as we would expect, flees. Now this would have been a calculated departure. Uh, Absalom did this understanding the consequences. He killed Amnon knowing what this would mean to him. That it might mean exile forever. But he had a plan in place. He had arranged safe passage and he had arranged asylum well before the events took place. And just as Jonadab said, they listened to the herald, people are coming. See, see David, those people that are coming, that's those are your sons. Just as I said, Jonadab tells him, Alive, with the exception of Amnon, who was dead from from the beginning in Absalom's mind. Verse 36. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of speaking, that, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very sore. They come together. They weep for Amnon. They weep for the vengeance. They weep for the wickedness. They weep for this murder. And as we finish the chapter, we got through the exposition quite quickly this evening. We find this in verses 37 to 39. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. 
And the soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. So we finish our chapter looking at the arrangements that Absalom had made for his asylum. The king of Geshur gave Absalom asylum. And this should be no surprise to us at all. For if you remember what I mentioned last time about Absalom and Amnon, and as we looked at their father, who's David, and their various mothers, 2 Samuel 3.3 tells us that Absalom was the son of a woman named Maacah. And Maacah was the daughter of a man named Talmai, king of Geshur. In other words, Absalom was King Talmai's grandson. Talmai had sent his son to marry David in a political union to unite their kingdoms. So Absalom's running to grandfather to save him from dad. He kills his half-brother. He flees to grandpa who has a peace treaty with dad through a marriage to mom. And as it stands, grandpa is going to be very willing to let his grandson stay and not die. So he's got a pretty good setup. David does not see fit to chase him. And so for three years, Absalom is in Geshur, exiled from Israel. Geshur was to the north and east of what would become known as the Sea of Galilee in Israel. If you think of where the Sea of Galilee is, if you've got a map in your head, go northeast, you'd find Geshur right there. The implication of the text is that after three years, David begins longing for his sons. As you read it, you can kind of get the idea that he was longing the whole time. And there's a, a little bit perhaps of a sense of that. But, but the text um, in the Hebrew implies that after these three years, the soul of David was longing to go forth into Absalom. He began to long for his son. At that point, he had been comforted concerning Amnon. Amnon was dead. Yes, he lost Amnon, but he didn't want to lose his son Absalom as well. So he begins longing for his son. He wants to see Absalom again. But David was also a proud man. Absalom had killed the eldest son and heir apparent to the throne. And this will lead into the next set of events where David will interact with Joab in regard to Absalom. And we'll pick up there next week with our exposition. What we see here, however, becomes a great warning to us, which we would do well to heed. There, there are several lessons which we can consider. We can learn some important truths about how we respond to the wrongs of our children, how our actions can speak louder than our words. We can also reiterate the lessons about men and women like Jonadab and the danger people that like to stir up drama, play both sides of the coin, pit people against each other. You really don't want to make those people your friends. You don't want to listen. You stay away from people like that. They're dangerous people. They live and thrive upon destroying relationships. And by the way, all of these reality TV shows on today, people just eat that stuff up, right? They just love to see relationships They love to see bumpy roads, rocky roads, relationships, fighting, infighting. They love to see that stuff. That's what reality TV is all about. The volatility of personal relationships. People love that. And they crave it. And if they can't get it from their reality TV show, or maybe what they're learning from their reality TV show will will come out in their lives. We must be careful around people like that. But the primary warning, what I want to focus on, what, what was the title of our message... 
the danger of resentment. And as we consider the danger of resentment, the fruit of resentment, I first want to answer the question. We'll answer several questions as we apply this evening. What is resentment? As I speak of resentment today, I'm speaking of an inward reaction to injury and wrong. It's a a bitter frustration or an offense at having been wronged. It's the foundation of hatred. It arises out of anger, but it's not just anger oftentimes. Oftentimes, resentment arises out of not just anger, but sorrow and surprise. Somebody that you love, somebody that you trusted, somebody that you didn't expect to hurt you has hurt you. There's sorrow, there's surprise, there's a shock to the system. You didn't want it, you didn't expect it, and it's happened to you. And you're hurt. And you're hurt deeply. Or you're hurt on someone else's behalf. Someone you know has been hurt, and that has hurt you. It's an emotion that takes hold upon a person as he attempts to cope with wounds, whether emotional or spiritual. We, we might call it a festering emotional pain that follows a deep injury toward you or toward someone that you love or care about. Resentment. What does resentment look like? I can't give you all of the things that resentment looks like, but can I just give you a few that I've come across either in my own heart or in my counseling? If you can think of a person, if you cannot think of a person without getting angry in your heart at them, If anger wells up in your heart when you think of a person, you're dealing with resentment toward them. If you regularly replay a hurtful situation in your mind, reminding yourself how you were hurt, how that person was wrong, as a way of a little bit of almost an anesthetic against the pain, there's some resentment there. If the pains of old wounds linger emotionally and spiritually well after the fact, there's some resentment there. And let me be clear. The pain of being hurt is real. And it's natural. It is a part of the natural process of grief and of coping, if we can use that word. It is not wrong to feel hurt, anger, shock, surprise, sorrow when others hurt you. But when that lingers, when that remains... When we don't deal with it, when we don't, if I can use the analogy, clean the wound, cut out the infection, and rather let it fester, it will become an infection, a deeper infection, and it will continue to eat away at your spirit. And in the emotional realm, that infection is called resentment. Memories of past hurts can remain forever. Disappointments for past longs can remain forever. But when anger remains, when those feelings still well up in you, when you think about that person or that event, there's danger there. There's danger. There's a seed of resentment that can bear fruit in your life if you're not careful When you're hurt and upset and the way of coping with it is to replay that painful scenario in order to justify your your actions and to, to relive their wrongs and their faults. In order to dull the pain that you feel, there's a danger there that you need to be aware of. That's a red flag that you need to start dealing with that. What is resentment? It's like a spiritual infection. It's a deep wound, a sorrow, a surprise, a pain, an anger. 
at towards someone or an event that festers, that remains. Where does resentment come from is the second question we need to ask. Resentment forms when we believe that a wrong has been done to us or done to one that we love that has not been vindicated. We each may perceive offenses differently and even vindication differently. And this accounts for different levels of resentment and passion among different people in the world. But it's these perceptions of being wronged and of not being vindicated that form the foundation of resentment. I have been wronged, someone I love has been wronged, and this has not been dealt with properly. There's been no justice, there's been no vindication, there's been no I'm right, you're wrong, there's been no forgiveness, there's been no apology, there's been no writing it. And that is the foundation of resentment. When someone wrongs me, I want vindication. Now, some people want more vindication than others. Some people, a a simple I'm sorry is sufficient for them. Maybe for some, they need compensation. Maybe some, they need an eye for an eye concept. They want justice. And really, we all want justice, don't we? It's kind of built into us to want justice. But biblically speaking, I'm going to attempt to boil resentment down to something much more basic than just wanting justice. If I can put it this way, resentment, the foundation of resentment, yes, it's a desire for justice. It's being, it's desiring vindication. It's, it's un, it's, it's, it's when you haven't been vindicated. But, but really when it, when it, when it boils down to the very nitty gritty of where resentment comes from in our lives, spiritually, it's unforgiveness. Now that's easy to say. But assuming this reality in your heart is different. It's difficult. It takes a fundamental shift of mind. Many would genuinely say, yes, I have forgiven that person or those persons for that incident. But they still deal with anger. That replaying of the situation. They still lack peace when they think of that person. All of those things we've mentioned already. And we say, yes, I still get angry when I think about it, but really I've forgiven that person. Well, no, you haven't. Not really. And I don't want that to come across as argumentative or contrarian or judgmental or hyper-pious or anything of the sort. I'm not trying to tell you that you're wrong for being upset. I don't know the circumstances of your life. I don't know what people have done to you. But... Your definition of forgiveness may imply in your heart that you've forgiven them, but by God's definition of forgiveness, if anger wells up in your heart when you think about them or that situation, you haven't fully forgiven them yet. And let me prove this to you. In our third point, and you see the fourth point up there as well, the third point is this. How do we solve resentment? This is going to be the bulk of the application today. And this is where I'm going to draw you to think on a different plane. I'm going to draw you to think on a higher plane than simply vindication. Than simply entitlement. To be angry. To be upset at someone for what they have done to you. To think ill of them. To replay that scenario in your mind. To toss it over. To to want vindication at least emotionally if you're not going to get it physically. 
how to solve resentment. We solve resentment, we cure resentment, we clean out that infection by understanding God's call unto forgiveness and what forgiveness is and then assimilating it into our lives. As with everything in life, our understanding of forgiveness flows out of a comparison and a contrast with the character of God itself. God's character is the standard by which all things are judged. You have not truly forgiven someone biblically until you have forgiven them in the same way God forgives. He is the standard by which we judge all things. This is why God has given us His Word, which teaches us of Himself, so that we can understand who He is, and by knowing who He is, we can understand how we ought to view everything around us. That the Word of God are the glasses, is the glasses, through which we see the things around us. So that as we look at the world around us, we look at it through the character of God and we understand things in that light. God shines a light upon something, an action of thought and emotion, and by that light, by the light of God's glory, we see it as it ought to be seen, as it realistically is. So let's think about how we're called to respond to offenses against us. And we're going to do so by building an argument and walking through various concepts. I'm going to walk through subpoints this evening. My apology for getting into subpoints. How do we solve resentments? First, we need to understand that we all want justice for others, but grace for ourselves. This is human nature. To want justice for others, but grace for ourselves. We begin our argument by understanding human nature. Justice is baked into us as humans. And in a country like the United States, where citizens enjoy a tremendous amount of freedoms and of rights, our sense of right and of justice is perhaps even greater than many others in the world, many others in history. The desire for justice is a natural thing, especially in the context of wrongs done against us or the ones that we love. Someone hurts me, I want them to be hurt. Someone steals from me, I want to get it back. Someone lies to me, I want them to get caught. But if we're honest with ourselves, we we must admit that we hold a, a double standard in our lives when it comes to this desire for justice. We We truly desire the hammer of justice upon the inequities and the wrongs done against us. But... If we're honest with ourselves, we must admit that when it comes to our own failings, we want grace, not justice. And this doesn't really feel like a double standard to us because we can always find rational reasons for deserving grace in our own lives, right? Well, I didn't mean to hurt you. That wasn't my intent. It didn't start out that way. I just wasn't really thinking about it at the time. I was well-meaning... Even really terrible things. Even really horrible things that are done. Well, I was having a really bad week and I exploded, right? Uh, you you got to understand the week I was having. My, my goldfish died that morning. I was really upset. I, I hadn't slept the night before. I lost my temper. That's not really me. That was someone else. It was just a bad day. And we want this. We expect this because we know us. Or at least we think we know us, and we know that our lives are, are based on circumstance. I mean, think about how you drive. Have you ever been in that situation? And I've used this illustration countless times, right? You're driving down the road, and someone cuts you off. And they meant to do it. 
They were, they woke up that morning thinking about cutting you off, right? They, they, they meant to do it. There's no excuse. They're a terrible driver. They don't know how to drive. They don't understand anything about road. How do they even have a license? Someone needs to revoke that license. Where's a police officer when you need one? All of that runs through your mind, right? But then you are driving down the road and you cut someone else off. I was in the lane. I didn't realize I had to get over. I didn't want to turn. Uh, I, I was distracted by a kid in the back seat. I hope they understand that as I'm cutting them off, I, I didn't, that they understand the circumstances. And we want that grace for ourselves. We don't think our license should be revoked. We don't think, we, we don't say, man, I'm, I, I wish there was an officer around here to nail me for this. But we can set up that double standard in our lives when it comes to someone else, can't we? It's difficult for us to see those circumstances in others, isn't it? It's difficult for us to keep a perspective when someone hurts us that, you know, maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe their dog just died. Maybe they didn't sleep well the night before. But really, regardless, when we think of circumstances, in a sense, all circumstances are no excuse for doing wrong to others, are they? Regardless of the factors involved, when we wrong someone, we have done wrong. Having a dead goldfish doesn't excuse your poor, poor behavior towards someone else. It's a reason, but it's not an excuse. Having a bad day, losing your job, all of the reasons that we might have for getting angry at someone, for blowing up at them, for hurting them, for, for doing whatever we do against someone else, for our gossip, for our, our our painful actions against others, they don't justify the bad behavior, do they? And in a system of true justice, wrongs done toward others require vindication, regardless of the reason, regardless of the circumstances involved. You wrong somebody, you deserve to be vindicated. That's justice. So why shouldn't we want? Why shouldn't we expect Why shouldn't we demand that when others wrong us that we get vindication? Why, if this is our character, that though we we desire grace for ourselves and we desire justice for others, at the end of the day, really, we all deserve justice when we wrong someone. When we hurt someone, we all deserve to, to have vindication upon us. Why should we not demand that? Simply put, because God has told us not to. And that's our second point as we build this argument. I hope it's making sense. Our second thought. God has called us to show unconditional grace to others. And has set the ultimate example through Christ. God's grace toward us compels us to have grace toward others. And that's the bottom line. Why is it that we are not right to desire that vindication and seek that vindication? Why is it that it is not right for us to hold resentment in our heart for the things that others have wrongfully done to us? Why is it that it's wrong for us to stew in our anger and our sorrow and our frustration against people and to hold things against them and to not be able to think of them without anger and hatred in our hearts because God hasn't done that to us? And how dare we do it to another when God has not done that to us? Matthew 5. 
Verses 44 and 45, Jesus teaches us, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This is the command, and this is a difficult thing, isn't it? To be kind to those who are unkind to us. To love those who hate us. To pray for those who wrongfully, willfully use us. And persecute us. And notice this isn't just pray for the person who in the past hurt you that you're still stewing over. Pray for those who are hurting you. Love those who are your enemies. But notice the reason in verse 45. That was verse 44. Verse 45, we continue halfway through this this um, slide. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. We love others that hate us. Pray for others that use us and persecute us. Do good to those that hate us. Because God is good to those who hate him. Because God blesses those who wrong him. We love our enemies because God loves his enemies. We do good to those who hate us because God does good to those who hate him. But pastor, you don't understand what they have done to me. I don't have to. Because God does. Is what another man or woman has done against you truly worse than what we have done against God? And if your answer is an obvious no... For indeed, the offense that mankind has done against God includes every possible offense done to you and toward you and by and toward every other person on earth. Then it should become clear quite quickly that you and I have absolutely no right to demand more out of others than God demands out of them. And our ultimate example, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. 1 Peter 2, verses 20 to 25. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For here, even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, Reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. We'll talk about committing ourselves to the one who judges righteously in our next sub-point. But our focus is on the example here, the response. Jesus was reviled. He didn't revile back. The text tells us when we are wronged that we are to take it patiently. Peter would go on to say in 1 Peter 3 verse 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. When we bless those that hurt us, that offend us, that anger us, we are blessed by God. We inherit 
a blessing for it. And Jesus carried this submission of His circumstances all the way to the grave as He was hanging on the cross, having been beaten, having been bruised, having been mocked, having been scorned, having been tortured for no offense of His own. And as He hung upon that cross and He was dying, He looked upon His accusers, upon His tormentors, and He said as they were casting lots for His clothes, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. (coughs) Jesus did this because this is the will of God. That we would reflect the same forgiveness and love toward those who have wronged us. That God has reflected upon those who wronged Him. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5.15... See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. And why does God want this? Well, first, because through our love, our enemies see Christ. Ephesians 4.32 And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, Forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We love others, we extend forgiveness to them, because by doing so we reflect Christ. And here we have the concept which I have mentioned several times but not really defined, forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the same as forgetfulness. There are offenses done against you which you will not forget. But forgiveness is a choice to release those offenses. It is a choice to release. Forgiveness is a choice that you make whereby you refuse to factor the wrong that was done against you into the way you treat a person or in a way you treat a group. You do not factor the wrong in because you have forgiven it. Again, this doesn't mean you pretend like they didn't do the wrong. If someone steals from you and asks your forgiveness, that doesn't mean you still leave money lying around your house. You just don't factor their offense into how you treat them. It does mean that if you have forgiven them, you don't treat them in accordance with their past wrongs. And you don't hold those wrongs against them. I see this with husbands and wives all the time. And I see it perhaps particularly because this is a lesson I had to learn early in my marriage. And it's wicked. It's wickedness. That a wife or a husband does something wrong. She asks forgiveness. Later, when that husband needs some leverage, he uses that wrong against his wife. Or he uses that wrong to make a jab at his wife. To make himself feel better. To bring up her wrong as leverage. Even though she has already apologized and he's already said, I forgive you. If he has said, I forgive you, and then he ever brings it up again as leverage, or even in a mocking, jab fashion, it's not released. And that is wicked. It is wrong for us to bring up offenses that we have stated we've already forgiven. For us to use those offenses as leverage. And it's not just in the marriage relationship. It's in any relationship, sibling, parent, whatever it might be, if the wrong is forgiven, then you dare not use it as leverage. That is not forgiveness. That is strategic justice. That is just waiting for the right moment to hold their wrongs against them for your benefit. That's resentful, vindictive, and it's wrong. 
Forgiveness is a complete release from guilt and judgment, regardless of merit. And we are called to forgive in this way because that is the way God has forgiven us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. Could you imagine if you got down on your knees tonight for something that you did and you asked the Lord to forgive you for a wrong and you felt that, that, that feeling of forgiveness and that, that release and then a month later God were to bring that issue up again and use it vindictively to accuse you? What a terrible thing that would be. If our actions against God were not actually released when we asked for forgiveness, if God was just storing them up so that He could vindictively use them later to jab us or to get us when He needed to prove a point, that's not forgiveness. And folks, if we live by this record of forgiveness, not only are we going to build up resentment in our hearts toward one another, but on top of that, we are going to be teaching others in our lives this concept of forgiveness, and they are going to, at some point, impose it upon how they see God's forgiveness. And so they're going to walk through life with this fear that when they've asked God for forgiveness and they believe that they've received it, God will still use it against them because that's what happens in their relationships. Mom and dad said they forgave me, but they still used it as leverage against me. Is that what God does too? My husband said he forgave me, but he's still using it as leverage against me. Is that how God works too? And we begin to fear that maybe even though God says that he has forgiven us for something that we have done, for if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We find ourselves in our minds and in our hearts still feeling as though God might use that Action which we have been forgiven for at some point as leverage against us. And He doesn't. And if He doesn't, then we dare not. And that's our final sub-point. By yielding our right to resent people, to hold their actions against them in unforgiveness, we inherit a blessing from God. We also have the peace of trusting God's perfect justice to do for us what we chose not to do for ourselves. And and folks, do know that justice is coming. But it isn't yours to give, and and you better not be it. Make no mistake, justice is coming. How? Well, for we who are in Christ, justice is already served, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God is poured out on us as our sin is poured out on Christ. Justice for your fault, if you are in Christ, has already been served. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. On the day of judgment, we will hear those blessed words. If you are in Christ, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, on the day of judgment, you will hear the words, not guilty. Not because you are innocent, but because the price has already been paid. Christ has already borne the wrath of your, ang- of your anger, of your unkindness, of your sin, of your theft, of your adultery. He's borne the wrath already on the cross. You have been healed. You are declared righteous because the wrath and judgment of God for your sin has fallen upon the head of the sinless Lamb of God. And if you're sitting here in the room this evening and you recognize that you have never accepted that gift of salvation, that you have never received that gift, 
Well, would you make tonight the night where you do? Where you admit to God that you are a sinner, that there's nothing you can do to get yourself to heaven, that you have offended a holy God, but that you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ has taken upon Himself the wrath that you deserved so that you would not have to face the punishment for your sin? And the Bible says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we will still face the judgment of lost rewards as believers, but we will not face the wrath of God for our sin unto eternal judgment. And may I just say that um, if, if the one who has wronged you is a believer, then their wrongs are under the blood of Christ as well, just as yours. They will face the loss of reward They will one day stand before God with tears in their eyes for the way that they have treated you. But their judgment is paid for in Christ, just as yours is. And to resentfully want more justice upon them, quite simply is to say that God's justice upon Jesus was not enough. And while Jesus' death was sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world, those who reject God's perfect gift of salvation through Christ are positioned for judgment. The Bible testifies that this day will come. Revelation 6.10 tells us that the souls of them who were slain for the word of God cry around the throne, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood upon them that dwell on the earth? And we read of this judgment that they cried for in Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And then it begins to describe the judgment upon the unbelieving world. On that day, God, who knows not just the actions, but the heart of every man, will judge every man in righteousness. And on that day, you will get vindication upon the wicked world which has wronged you. And your loved ones. And the whole of the people of God from Adam until today. But I point you to consider the final phrase of that subpoint. It's not up anymore. Judgment is coming. That's God's business. But don't be in a hurry for it. And what I mean is this. We can form ungodly resentment over many very serious abuse done in our past. Death of ones we loved. Lives that have been destroyed, ruined, jobs, lost, lies, intrigue, terrible things. But we can also form ungodly resentment over other things, less serious. Things that didn't destroy us, just upset us. Gossip, favoritism, vandalism. And while the concept of judgment is a comfort, never forget that all of those who have not accepted Jesus Christ's judgment on their behalf will spend an eternity in a sinner's cell. And while fiery judgment might in a moment of thought bring a joy to your heart as you think about that guy who cut you off on the highway. In reality, how could you wish anyone such an end? We, we couldn't wish anyone such an end. Your personal resentments will, without question, get in the way of you seeking to rescue those out of the pathway of hell if you let those resentments fester. Your personal resentments will, without question, get in the way of you loving a brother in Christ if you allow those resentments to fester. Paul said this in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. 
Recompense no man to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt keep heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy, first from Deuteronomy 32-35, where God says vengeance belongs to him. He then quotes from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22, where we are called upon to bless our enemies that it might soften their hearts. Which is what this idea of heaping coals of fire upon their heads mean. I have heard it preached before. I do not agree with those who preach it this way. That by being kind to those that hate you, you'll inflame their anger and you'll, you'll make them really upset. Because when you're kind to someone that's trying to be unkind to you, it makes them really upset and you're heaping coals of fire on their heads. I don't believe that's what this text is saying. I believe this text is saying that by being kind to them, you will soften their own wrath and anger against you, making it conducive unto peace. God has wired humans in such a way that they have a difficult time maintaining their evil and vindictive spirit against someone who's being kind to them. You can read stories about men in Nazi Germany and in in communist Russia who, for the sake of Christ, were imprisoned. And as they were being mercilessly beaten by their guards, they would say, I forgive you, I love you, God loves you, thank you. I forgive you, I forgive you, with every lashing, I forgive you, God loves you, I forgive you, God loves you, to the very point where the guards in the prison, the commanders could find no guard willing to beat that man. Because no guard could handle the fit of conscience that would be in their heart. As they were thanked and forgiven with every lash they were given to these followers of Christ. That's heaps of coal being heaped upon their heads. Our call is not to avenge ourselves, but rather to allow our anger to give way to God's vengeance, trusting that God will deal with them justly and we deal with them in love and forgiveness. We ask one final question as we close today. What are the consequences of harboring resentments? And this is where we bring it back to our text. We've learned this evening what resentment is. We've learned where it comes from. We've learned how to solve it. But maybe... You think you're okay. You've managed your resentment to this point. You you find comfort in your resentments. You know that they're there. You think of certain people and it makes you angry. You think of certain people and it wells you up with, with resentment. You think of circumstances. You replay them in your mind. You think of all the ways that you are vindicated. All the ways that they wronged you. The ones you love. You think of their justice. You think of the day of justice. You're comforted by all of these things. But you think you're okay with that. You can handle it. You're doing just fine. They make you feel good. They stroke your ego. They help you ease the pain of past hurts. But we need to understand that resentments come with deep consequences. We already spoke about the consequence of not being able to love our brother or sister in Christ as God has called us to love them. We've already spoken of the consequence of not being able to longingly reach out to an unbeliever because we hate them. And we may think we're above this, but I would wonder how many of us would reach out to the politicians that we believe have harmed us so much, if we could. 
how many of us would look at them with loathing or how many of us would look at them with love? How many of us pray for them for their salvation? How many of us pray for them for their destruction? How many of us rejoice over the the failures and the falling of those who are evil? Resentment is sin, so to live in resentment is to hinder your relationship with Christ. Absalom allowed his resentment to fester, and at the end of two years, he killed his half-brother. Was there an element of justice to Absalom's actions? Yes, there was. But was it right? No, it was not. In 1 Samuel 25, we consider some time ago the account of David, Nabal, and Abigail. Nabal had deeply offended David. David was on his way to destroy Nabal's household. Abigail stops him. She falls upon her face. She humbles herself before him and she respectfully reminds him that God is the judge of men, not David. And David says, bless you, for this day you have kept me from doing wrong by avenging myself. And we would do well to heed that same warning. Resentments can pick your life apart from the inside out. It can eat you up like a cancer, like an infection. It can consume your life with anger. It can make you bitter and jaded, unable to love, unable to have compassion, unable to see people and give them the benefit of the doubt. It can curb your capacity to love others. It can strip your life of joy. And in doing so, it can strip you from the fruit of the Spirit. Consider the list of the fruit of the Spirit with me from Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Resentment will strip you from the capacity to love, to have fullness of joy, to experience true and complete peace, to manifest patience. Resentment quenches the Spirit's capacity to work in you. But what if that isn't enough for you? Well, let me give you one more thought. I know it's been long. Let me give you one more thought. What if I told you that your resentment against somebody could end up causing God to be more lenient upon them? Could actually curb God's judgment against them through your resentment of them? Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Evil politician stumbles down the stairs, gets sick. Evil spokesperson for Some satanic part of our culture dies or gets hurt. We rejoice. Be careful. But when your enemy falls or stumbles and you allow your heart to be glad over it, you might just be curbing God's judgment against them. We could say more, but we don't have time. We could go deeper into the judgments promised against the wicked. We could go deeper into our call to forgive and love others. We could spend weeks on the commandment to love others, much less our enemies. We could talk about how these evils affect the unity of the church, how resentment can collapse churches, can collapse evangelistic efforts, how it can threaten the very next generation of the church. But I simply remind you that God has forgiven you of far more offenses than 
anyone has ever done against you. And anyone ever will do against you. I remind you that Jesus died for your forgiveness and for theirs. I remind you that if Jesus offered forgiveness when he had never wronged another, it is nothing but pride that would keep you in resentment, withholding forgiveness for even the very worst offenses done against you or against those whom you love. And I leave you today with the words of our Lord, who would call us to be like him, by reminding us that we cannot do any better than being like Him. If He died on the cross to forgive all sins, if He bore the forgiveness of those who had done Him so wrong, well, what is our privilege but to follow in His footsteps? I leave you with Matthew 10, verses 24 to 26. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. Can you trust that God will take care of the rest if you just are like your master? Walking in forgiveness, curbing resentment, dealing with those things so that they don't ensnare you, enslave you, or overcome you. Let's close in prayer.